This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by the Motley Fool Investment Guide. That's right, penned by beloved brothers David and Tom Gardner. The Motley Fool Investment Guide is presently priced to move. Go to book.fool.com. I have to say, this is not an official ad, by the way. I have to say, I'm almost embarrassed by how low we're selling this book. This book is worth far more than the roughly $13-ish that you can pay at book.fool.com. It's a life changer. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to have you with me this week. And you are, I'm increasingly reminded, you are everywhere. It's it's awesome to read mailbag entries coming in from Norway or Quebec, Canada, where I just spent a portion of the last week. Uh, and of course, right here in the U.S. of A., a lot of notes as well. Some commonalities. I've combined up some of our mailbag items this week because I'm hearing some similar questions, which means these questions are shared by many if I'm getting multiple entries on a few topics. So, ahead, we've got our August 2017 mailbag. I don't want to forget that we have new listeners every week. So, if you didn't already know, the final Wednesday of every month, it is mailbag time here at Rule Breaker Investing. So, you send in your notes, rbi at fool.com is the email. You can also use at rbi podcast if you want to tweet us a short note. And then I read them. I do personally read each one. And thank you for the stories that you're often telling about yourself, uh, telling me a little bit about who and where you are. Uh, and then I kind of screen them with the help of my producer and friend, Rick Engdahl, and we kind of put it together for you. A little bit slapdash. We have no big research crew or other resource here. Each of the Motley Fool podcasts is kind of its own autonomous homebrew effort to decipher the world of investing for you. So that's kind of what we've done this week. I have, let me see, let me count them. I have 11 different points this week. Now, do the math with me. I usually like to bring in this podcast around 30 minutes. So, with 11, that means shorter answers. More questions. A lot of pressure on yours truly. I will do my best to be. Some of these do take a little bit more time than others, but let's see how we do. Mailbag item number one, and I'm taking Blake Foster and making him my leadoff batter this week because this one's so easy to answer, so it gets the momentum going. So, hi, David. My name is Blake Foster. I'm currently a member of Motley Fool Stock Advisor. First of all, I love everything your company offers your slew of podcasts, investing services, great employees, latest investing news at fool.com. Thank you very much, Blake. I just have a question on how you calculate the S&P return on your Stock Advisor recommendation list. So, looking at Costco, the return is 401.8%, which is correct. That would be my brother Tom's pick. Nice job, Tom. Costco held over many years now. The return is correct, but when I look at the S&P 500 return, I'm confused because as of April 12, 2002, which is when Costco was picked, and so scoring it against the market, the S&P was at, and he gives a price, and then says as of this August, it was at a other price, and that would be a total return, he says, of 123%, not 204%, which is how we list it. In Stock Advisor, Blake says, Am I missing something, or are you calculating this in a different way than I am? Also, he says at the end, I live in Minnesota, was wondering if you offer any telecommute jobs as I'm not able to convince my wife and kids to move to Virginia. Well, this is just a quick way of plugging. I know we're both Minnesota Twins fans, so Blake, um, keep the faith. But back to your question. So, this is a rather easy one for me to answer. What we're doing on Motley Fool Stock Advisor and each of our services that uses the SP 500 
The Standard & Poor's 500, 500 of the largest companies in America. We call that the S&P 500. Well, actually, it's called by Standard & Poor's the publishing company, but we use that as a proxy for the overall moves of the market. And what we're doing as our benchmark is we're including dividends. So, when you take a version of the S&P 500 where those 500 companies, many of them pay a dividend every year. And if you account for that in the return of the S&P 500, and then you do it over 15 years or so, isn't it interesting, Blake, to see that without dividends, the S&P would have returned, as you say, 123%. But with dividends, it actually has returned 204%. And yes, we use that higher measure, that more demanding measure, to compare the performance, in this case, of Costco, or any of the stocks that we pick in Stock Advisor, or the whole Stock Advisor service, we're comparing against the harder benchmark, the one that's truer, and that is if you had the dividends accounted for in those stock picks. So, you can see the value of investing in stocks with dividends when you see that higher number over the course of the long term. So, that's what we're doing, Blake, and I hope it's clear. I hope you agree with it. Mailbag item number two. This one comes from Vikas Patel. Hi, David. First of all, I love your RBI podcasts. I've heard multiple times you mentioned we could trade fractional stocks using Robinhood. But I recently opened the account with Robinhood and found out they do not offer such service. Wanted to find out if you know such service existed at or outside of Robinhood. Thank you, Vikas Patel. Well, first of all, Vikas, I'm sorry if that is the case. And indeed, I let my fingers do the Googling and discovered that it is true that Robinhood, the free stock trading app that many, especially younger people, it seems to me, but anybody can use off their mobile phone. Robinhood does not allow you to buy partial shares. Now, for a lot of people new to the stock market, they might wonder, well, why would I even want to buy a partial share, like half a share of Apple? Well, if a stock is at, let's say, $438 a share today, trading on the stock market, and you only had about 200 bucks, but you wanted to buy that stock, it's awfully nice, isn't it, to be able to buy a partial share? Now, it sounds like Robinhood does not do that. Uh, I may have mentioned them in the past. I don't remember saying pounding the table for them doing so, but taking you at your word, because I will let you know that there is at least one type of account I know that you can open and trade fractional shares, and that is ShareBuilder. Now, ShareBuilder is a company, a past Motley Fool partner, kind of in our discount broker area of our website, but it was acquired by Capital One. So, if you go to the Capital One site, or if you're interested in opening up an account, you could take a look at their ShareBuilder program, where you'll see they're still doing that same thing. So, you have the opportunity to state ahead of time that you want to invest X dollars. It needs to be on kind of a regular schedule. Based on what I'm seeing from their website, so maybe you'll say, you know, I'm going to be buying on the first of every month, and I'll be investing hundred dollars, that sort of thing. So you're on a regular schedule, but then you can say, you know, the stock that you want to buy, and if that stock is trading at four hundred thirty-eight dollars a share, and you have your one hundred dollars, well, you will get really quick math using my Mac, you will get point two two eight three one zero five shares of Apple when you make that purchase, and that's the way you can build up shareholdings using smaller amounts of money in stocks that just happen to have larger share prices. So, because while it sounds like Robinhood might not do that, maybe you'll still enjoy that free trading, although don't trade too often. But for those who are interested in partial shares, that's at least one partial answer. I'm sure that there are other services, and if anybody wants to write in or let us know here at Rule Breaker Investing, maybe I'll mention it next month's mailbag. Mailbag item number three, I'm going to get to this one and number four, then I'm going to pause. Um, maybe do a, a quick 
add. And then I'm going to go to the next four points, which to me are four of the cardinal points of investing. Four recurring questions often asked and often answered on this show. And I'm going to do them in order. Uh, so, points number five through nine, get your notebooks out because these are kind of classic questions that get re asked. And I'm going to speak to those before having a few additional ones at the end. Anyway, a little bit of preview of what's to come. Mailbag item number three. This comes from another Minnesotan. In fact, Dylan Dimke, you come from beautiful, as you write, Brainerd, Minnesota. You're 25 years old. You're going to ask a question that I'm not going to have a good answer to, but I am going to say something toward it. So here's what you wrote I'm very new to stocks and investing. I've just found it to be absolutely fascinating. I joined Stock Advisor about a month ago, been catching up on your Rule Breakers podcast, as well as a few others that The Fool offers. Want to say thank you for all you do for young investors like me. You and your team at Fool HQ do a wonderful job. I'm not going to read all this, but thank you very much. You go on to say, I recently cashed out all of my double E, my EE savings bonds that have been given to me each birthday. I'm sure others of us had this experience as kids since I was born, Dylan writes. He says that's not a huge sum of cash, but it is substantial at this point in his life at the age of 25. And he used the money to purchase, you said, three of my favorite stocks off the starter stocks list of Stock Advisor. And you go ahead and say that they're Apple, Nike, and PayPal. So you now are a part owner of those companies. Congratulations, Dylan. As well as another Stock Advisor stock, that would be Activision Blizzard, to begin, you say, building your investing foundation. You go on, I buy in completely to the strategy of purchasing great companies for the long haul. So I'm doing my best not to pay attention to the daily fluctuations in their stock price. I'd also like to take your advice and purchase 15 different companies as soon as possible. However, I don't have a lot of expendable cash at the moment to continue investing. I do dedicate, Dylan goes on, 5% of my salary, matched 40% by my employer to a Roth 401k or maybe IRA. But I feel like I'm missing out on a golden opportunity to get into some more great companies in an early age and allowing the wonder of time to work its magic. Do you have any strategies for a young investor to continue adding to his portfolio while bringing in a young professional's salary? An anxious fool. Dylan Dimke. Well, Dylan, first of all, good on you, because it is outstanding to hear from a 25-year-old who's already putting away 5% of his salary. Yes, we'd love to see that at 10% if you can squeeze it. So, that's my first bit of advice. Squeeze that belt. Can you do 6%? Can you do 75 What about 10% is really what where we'd love it if each of us could get there. And In the end, it's just about controlling your own spending or being Utterly disciplined or more cognizant of what you're doing. Uh, and that's that's the best first answer I have for you. You're getting an employer match. Excellent. Anybody who's getting an employer match from any employer should max out that match because, as the old saw goes, it is truly free money. You're g- being given free money to add to your investment nest egg. So, good on you again. Really, what I want to say here is that I'm not a specialist. At budgeting or helping people think about how to save more money. We have a lot of resources here at The Motley Fool. When I think about a Motley Fool podcast like Motley Fool Answers, Motley Fool Answers sometimes answers personal financial questions about how to save better, how to save smarter. Um, We also have a discussion board on our free side at fool.com called Living Below Your Means. It is one of our longest running most prolifically posted to discussion board in Fool history. There are a lot of people helping each other 
figure out how to live below our means. You know, I did tweet out just on my own here in the last week or two. I just said a lot of people talk about the sustainability of our environment or our world today, and I think that those are great things. I'm glad there's more conversation about that than ever before. I also want anybody who cares about sustainability to think about personal sustainability, specifically your own financial sustainability. You want the best for your environment? I do too. I want the best for you, and the best way to be financially sustainable is to live below your means, to have capital that you then go on to invest. So, Dylan, what I'm here to say is, I'm not great at this. I would encourage you, there are a lot of online sites you can probably Google, sites like Mint, with a lot of people who do budgeting and share ideas with each other. But really, what I want to point out is the beauty of the cycle that you've set up. Because not only have you gotten started investing early at a young age, but it has whetted your appetite to have more to invest. And that's one of the most positive dynamics that I see in the financial world today. When people truly take control of their own destiny via their own finances, and they start to save, and then they invest, and yep, the stock market, as it turns out, more often than not, goes up. They watch their money do that work for them without them doing any work. You buy those shares of Apple or Netflix, Sometimes you have some tough years, but they go up over time. And you know what it makes you want to do? It makes you want to save more. It makes you realize the beauty of it. And that's what I want for every young person in this world, especially, is to recognize the ownership culture and the beauty of owning companies and letting them grow in value, and you benefit from that. And that is maybe the best way to inspire people to save that I know of. And the people who have started it, like you, Dylan, start to ask, that positive question, how do I save even more? I wish you the best. Mailbag item number four. Pretty much, I'm just going to read this one. I just love the perspective and where this comes from. I don't have a lot to say, Evan Machete, but I loved your note. You start it with a quotation. It's Einstein's, and I'll assume this is from Einstein. I'm taking your word for it here, Evan. Quote, a true genius admits he knows nothing. Period. End quote. Full stop. Albert Einstein. Here's your note. David, I devoured your recent Great Notes Volume 6 episode, particularly the final quote about the island of knowledge and coastline of mystery. Perhaps you're familiar with the quotation that I've included that I just read for you all here on this podcast, but if you aren't, I wanted to share it knowing you would appreciate it. I strongly empathize with your statement about not being able to possibly tackle all the things you want to learn, even after eliminating daily news feeds. Quick editorial note on my part. I continue to go with that. I've dropped my daily news feeds. I said I would do it for July and August. I'm loving it here at the end of August, so I'm going to keep keep going and see where that leads me. But yeah, even after doing that, Evan, you point out, it's a wonderfully virtuous cycle. You write that of learning, then realizing how little one really knows, which only accelerates the drive to learn more. The wisest people I know readily, even eagerly, acknowledge their capital F foolishness. I think a capital F is particularly warranted for those who are never satisfied with their current level of understanding. And now onto the rest of your note. And anybody who's a baseball fan in particular will probably appreciate this perspective, but even if not, I hope you find it interesting as I did. Evan goes on, I earned a Master's of Science degree a few years ago and now work in an industry dominated by skilled tradespeople. I'm a grounds crew supervisor for a major league baseball team. Without denigrating my fellow grass gurus, as an industry, we are often caught in doing things the way they've always done them. 
Having personally done a brief stint in the research and education sector, I'm sometimes frustrated by the tempering or extinguishing of your words, he's describing these to me, quote, the burning flame of curiosity, end quote, outside the insular boundaries of the academic world. It's my mission, Evan writes, to bring a more motley, even contrarian perspective to turf grass management. And listening to your podcast and paradigms helped me to do just that. I've been listening for two plus years now, often while mowing the turf or preparing the infield dirt at the stadium. I sincerely appreciate your insight and wisdom and eagerly await each week's episode full on. I will simply, to you, sir, say, back full on. All right, those were our opening four points. I should mention briefly, there is no official advertiser this week, so I've made it The Motley Fool Investment Guide. Again, it's the book that my brother Tom and I first wrote in 1995, published in 1996, became a bestseller. And we waited, we let some years go by, and then we let even more years go by than we meant to, and then eventually we thought, you know what? People are reading books still today. In fact, while a lot of people are reading books on their Kindle, and I'm included, I think I've heard recently that there's been kind of a swing back toward paper books paperbacks, physical books, um, more so than you might expect. But whether you were to purchase our new, refreshed 2017 edition of The Motley Fool Investment Guide in paperback form or in electronic form, I hope that you will. I hope not only that, but that you will recommend the book and that you will perhaps even buy a copy or two for friends or family people that you think would be benefited by the message of saving, of investing, caring, choosing, showing patience, and prospering, which is what, at the end of the day, The Motley Fool is all about, prospering, using the stock market as your savings bank, and learning about this wonderful investment vehicle, which reconnects not just Americans, but people around the world with the companies whose products and services they appreciate, makes it evident to them that not only can you enjoy that shoe that you buy, or that cup of coffee that you buy, but you can actually own, in part, the company that makes that shoe or that cup of coffee. And you know what? You're going to get richer as a consequence of doing that over the course of time. So, the more that we can reconnect more people around the world with that fundamental paradigm, the better off they will be, no question about that, and the better off you and I will be, because a richer world is a better world for all of us. So, there's my own homebrew ad for The Motley Fool Investment Guide. Love it if you would go to book.fool.com and pick up your copy right now. All right, so I mentioned that there are four cardinal investing points. I haven't ordered them. Uh, they're just all recurring big questions that I want to speak to this month. So, this next one really comes from both Joseph Brown and Mike, who's a 47 year old investor. You both asked similar questions. I'll start with kind of Joseph's version, abridging a little bit here. But, David, in a recent issue of a widely distributed money magazine, there was an article quoting several well known money managers, Bill Gross among them, who say that the market is oversold. Most sectors are overvalued. There's no safe place from the impending burst of the current bubble. This article has me wondering if I should take some money off the table as I'm within five years of retirement. That's Joseph Brown's note. And then, Mike, you wrote that you're 47 years old, actively involved in investing these last five years when you started to receive an annual bonus as seed money for an account. You say, I have moved from an index fund model to what my Fidelity account now calls a, quote, most aggressive portfolio. 
In the last year, I've used your services. Thank you to find a good blend of what I consider buy and hold companies that'll give a strong, reliable return, balanced with stocks that might be up and comers to hopefully build a larger portfolio on. I have a ceiling goal for my portfolio to reach in value where I'd like to stop being as aggressive and start looking to move money into investments that would be more stable. My reason for this is my oldest son just started high school. I'll soon be planning to make college payments, etc. Okay, so both Joseph and Mike are asking questions about where the market's headed, whether it might be dropping, and or should they be redeploying given these things, or entering a phase of life where you start to slow down a little bit. Maybe you don't want to quote most aggressive, whatever Fidelity means by that, probably just you're all invested in stocks and maybe some higher price to earnings ratio stocks are the kinds we talk about on this podcast. So maybe we all end up with aggressive portfolios by listening to Rule Breaker Investing. But what I want to say to you are two things, Joseph, Mike, and everyone else, about this key question of, you know, where's the market headed? Number one, I honestly don't know where the market's headed. I as I've said in recent months on this podcast, I've given away all effort to ever call or think about where the stock market's headed. I might have some intuition that we're a little low right now or a little high, but I've found that that intuition isn't really worth nearly as much as point number two. Point number two, the incredible importance of being invested as fully as possible at all times. While it's certainly true that the stock market will have some death-defying drops, and we've seen a couple of those in just the last decade or so, it's equally true that even with those death-defying drops that have happened throughout history, the stock market averages around a 10% return. Therefore, when we're fully invested, unless you're really good at guessing, and the great investor Peter Lynch used to say, hey, I'm fine with people telling me, I'm paraphrasing Peter Lynch here, I'm fine with people telling me that I should be leaving the market because it's high right now, just so long as they ring a bell, a big gong, when it's time to get back in the market. And often, that's what you don't hear. It's very easy to say that the market looks high. That's, I hear that all the time in the airwaves or read it in print. Very few people will come back in and say, now's the time to buy, after they've said the market's high, if they got lucky enough to see it drop over those succeeding months. So, I would just say, the key points here are, remain invested at all times if possible, but, in deference to some of what Joseph and Mike said about whether they're too aggressively invested, or they're coming upon life stage moments where they may not want to be fully exposed to stocks, I absolutely think that's important, and you should listen to yourself, and you should act accordingly. And I'll probably be speaking to that in a couple of points a little bit more, but I want you to know that there's no one-size-fits-all answer that I can ever give to this question, because each of us has a different situation. But if it's your own sense that the market might be a little bit high, or I think more importantly, that you need this money now for the specific reason why you invested it in the first place, then yes, you should start to rebalance some or sell back some or start to move toward more dividend stocks if you like, as long as you have good answers about what you're going toward and not just a feeling that you need to exit. I would only ever start to move money around if I felt confident where I was putting it next. Otherwise, I'm more than happy with inertia and laziness to leave it invested as it is and let my stocks continue to go out there and perform for me. So, make sure that you're doing it consciously. But yes, there are reasons not to be fully invested, especially given the context that each of us have in our individual lives. Okay, mailbag item number six. Now, this one is the classic 
but what about valuation question? And it comes to us in this form from Eric, who's a 20-year-old investor who studies finance at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada. I'm a reasonably new listener. Eric writes, I haven't yet made my way through all the podcasts, so this may have been answered. If so, I apologize. But in university, our professors stress the importance of financial modeling for stock analysis, comparable analysis, discounted cash flows, etc. For certain companies with a predictable business, Discounted cash flow analysis, DCF, DCFs can make sense, but for the best stocks that are likely to outperform the market, predicting what free cash flow will be in the year 2025 is a fool's errand, Eric writes, small f. I also hate all the assumptions that are made. For example, the discount rate used in DCFs, Eric writes, are almost always generated from the capital asset pricing model, the CAPM, cap M, and that assumes that beta equals risk. If a stock has fallen 50% to the market's 25%, the beta of that stock will be 2, and it will result in a risky business and a high discount rate. But if the decline is unwarranted, Eric says, well, hasn't that stock become less risky? So, it goes on a little bit more from there, but do DCFs matter? Does the full team use comparable analysis, Eric asks. So, this timeless question about what do we do with valuation, here's my own cut at it here in August of 2017. So, I think it's really good to learn what you're learning, Eric. Not all of us who invest, even those who invest successfully, can even do a discounted cash flow analysis or has been taught or trained in capital asset pricing, and I include myself among that group. I'm basically an English major, and I was taught the stock market as a kid by my dad, and I've learned a lot since the age of 18 when I took over my account in full and made all the decisions ever since. Now, here I am, 51 years old, but I don't have some of the training that you're getting as an undergrad right now. Um, I think it's great to know. And the analogy I often use, and it's with the game of bridge, the card game of bridge, I realize not as many people play it today as when I was top bridge as a young kid, but you need to learn how the bidding system of the game of bridge works. There are some codes, some standards. When I open three hearts, I'm saying something very specific. And if you're a bridge player, you know, and if you're not, we won't bother because this podcast is already going to be too long. But just trust me, you need to learn the basics of how to bid in order to play bridge. And yet, what separates the great bridge players from the ho-hum bridge players are the people who know that everyone else is going to bid three hearts. But in this situation, this person is going to go against the conventional wisdom, is going to drop the basic rules of the game that everyone's been taught, is going to break the rules, do it differently, and, if he or she is right, is going to win big, is going to outperform all the other players playing that same bridge board in that situation, that same hand of bridge. So, this is how I think about valuation work. I think it's really great background, and all of us should have at least some of it. You should know what a price-to-earnings ratio is. I, you should know when to use price-to-sales instead of price-to-earnings. Um, and yes, you should definitely, if you have this kind of numerical interest and are good at spreadsheets, you should conduct your own DCF, if you like. All that said, Eric, as you well know, the premise of discounted cash flow analysis is that you can guess what the cash flows will be of something 10 years from now, so that you can therefore project back to today what you'd be willing to pay for those cash flows, assuming that they were steady and stable, and that you were successful at holding your thumb up, licking it first, and holding it up high in the air to see which way the wind would blow, and you called it. You knew the weather. In my experience, 
The world is increasingly fast changing and dynamic, and especially the kinds of companies that you're talking about and that I speak about every week on Rule Breaker Investing. These kinds of companies are not at all well suited to discounted cash flow analysis. To find Facebook in its heyday, which we did pretty well when it came public in 2012, we've we're now showing a about a seven bagger for our initial recommendation of that stock. Facebook, part of the reason it's done so well in five years, it's up seven times in five years, is because it beat everybody's predictions in terms of how much it might grow. I don't think people were thinking with their discounted cash flow analysis ten years ago that Facebook would be in front of two billion people today. So. I think it's great to know, to have that discipline, to be able to use the tool, but I don't think you should use it to drive most of your decision-making, especially in our realm of rule-breaker investing. After all, part of the nature of breaking the rules is that the valuation rules that are set up by the world and well-taught, especially in academia, those are the very rules we're breaking often to pick a stock like Facebook or like Priceline back in 2004, or a stock more recently, rule-breakers like the Trade Desk or Mercado Libre. These are stocks that pretty much break the rules of valuation. If you use those rules, you'll never buy these stocks. You'll never, in my experience, buy some of the best companies in the world. So, there's my answer there. Thank you, Eric. All right, we've got two more investing classics to get through. I realize I think I'm starting to feel like I'm going a little long, so I'll try to be a little bit more clipped in my answers to these critical questions, and then we have a couple fun ones at the end. All right, this next one, I'm going to combo two questions once again, one coming from Josh, one coming from Dennis. Josh, you basically put it this way, from what I've read, it may be prudent to rebalance every year back to the target allocations that you have. For example, something like 40% rule breaker stocks, 40% value stocks, 10% real estate, 10% cryptocurrency you included. So it might be prudent to rebalance every year back to those allocations, but that also seems somewhat counter to your advice, David, at least about individual stock picks, stay with the winners, don't sell them. That's the way Josh puts it. Or in Dennis's case, Dennis said in a recent email, your brother Tom had a few tips to help mitigate risk in a portfolio. One of the tips was not to let one stock exceed 15% of your portfolio. Dennis, you said, I have one stock, Netflix, that has grown above this level recently, given your discovery that the stock advisor portfolio would have performed better if you hadn't sold any of its stocks. That's something we've talked about in the past. We went back and looked at all of Stock Advisor and realized that we would have done better if we'd never sold once. Given that, should I sell part of my Netflix holdings to bring it below 15%, or should I buy more of other stocks to dilute Netflix's share of my holdings? So, fools all, the question is about rebalancing or having overweighted positions. And my best single shot at answering this question is that I don't use targets myself. I don't go in and say, I'm going to have 30% domestic, 30% international value stocks, 20% in bonds, this kind of thing. I totally respect that people do that. And if you go in and use a financial planner or a professional financial advisor, often these are the terms that they're using. It is just the default framework that they use that you would have X percent in this or that thing and Y percent in this other thing. That's that's how they invest for their clients. For me, I try to have, and this number was referenced by our young investor earlier, I try to have at least 15 stocks. I try to make those 15 plus stocks come from some different industries. I don't overinvest in any of them. If I'm going to buy 20 stocks, I'll start with a 5% position in each of those 20. That equals 100%. And then what I'll do is I'll let time play out. I'll let the world 
happen. And we'll see who wins and who loses. And I'm going to be wrong about some of those. I'm going to have some real dogs in my 20 stocks. I'm going to have some stocks that lose more than half their value. I'm also going to have some stocks that rise well more than twice their value, especially if I let time play out. And so, as this happens, instantly you'll be out of balance. Your portfolio will become imbalanced. In some cases, it might be scarily overinvested in one, two, or three stocks, all of which, by definition, would be your biggest winners. So, fundamentally, you're going to be dealing with something that's out of balance, that happens over time, and the things that you're most heavily invested in, and arguably over-invested in, are going to be the things that did the best, that probably had the best management, the best products or services, the best competitive advantage, and really helped the world most. And the question you'll then have to ask is the one that Dennis is asking. I now have more than X percent in this stock, should I? And my best answer to close this one at that question is, you're going to know your own situation better than I will. I'll say this, I've allowed stocks to become more than half of my net worth over the course of the past, at different points in history, if a stock absolutely took off as AOL did back in the day. And more recently, we've had some big winners when you think about stocks like, I've mentioned it before, Netflix, Priceline, some others. So this can happen in portfolios, in member portfolios here at The Fool. For some of us who are used to that, we can accept that kind of a risk. And also, in my case, I have a little bit of extra benefit because most of my wealth is probably tied up in my company. So, if my own portfolio imploded, which I don't intend that it ever will, I probably would still be okay in part because I have a big holding in my own company. So, each of us has, maybe you have a big real estate holding that I'm not talking to. So, each of us is allocated in different things that I can't really speak to, but you need to know what makes you comfortable sleeping at night. And especially as we age and get to a point where we need that money, you might want to think harder about reducing winning positions. And to close this shaggy dog answer, my best approach to doing that, if and when you decide to shave down a position, is to do it incrementally. Is to say, if if your holding of Netflix is at 22% and your target for your portfolio, for a stock or a group of stocks, is not 22% but just 15%, then rather than shave off that seven percentage points all at once, I would highly suggest you programmatically trade. Let's just say. One percentage point will go on the 15th of the next seven months. Just make it mechanical, take any guesswork out of it, make it simple and mathematical. And that's my favorite way to reallocate. So, whatever percentages any one of us should be in, I hope that that tactic is helpful for you, whoever you are, to be incremental about it. And I would say, in the end, use your own emotions as your best guide to whether you are appropriately invested for you in a way that helps you sleep well. And I hope you do. And mailbag item number eight is the last of our investing classics. This one comes in short form from Simon. Simon said, I love rule breakers, and since signing up, I've made some impressive returns on my investments. I do have a question, though. When investing a lump sum, foolishly, is it better to invest an amount each month or over maybe 12 plus months? Or just go all in straight away on a selection of stocks. Would appreciate your thoughts, Simon Spear, London, UK. Thank you, Simon, for writing in. So, on the one hand, you can imagine I might answer this in the way I just answered the previous question, which is be incremental. So, with a lump sum for a lot of us in our psychology, 
it's stressful to think that all of a sudden you'd plunk all of that, that lump sum into the market. After all, you might be the unlucky person, I've, I've felt this way in the past, who just bought right at the top. Right when you put in your lump sum, the market sells off this autumn. And you're like, why did I do that then? Why can't I be a better person or investor? Why does this always happen to me? And I've felt that way too before. That's why it's a lot easier for our psychologies often to say, lump sum, I'm going to break it up into, we'll just make this up five pieces. And I'm going to invest one piece every two months. So on the first of the month, on months one, three, five, seven, and nine, I'm going to invest one fifth of that and I'm going to get invested over time. That way, when the market goes up or down, you don't really care that much. You pat yourself on the back that you didn't put it all in at once and it feels easy and good. And for a lot of people, for a lot of people, this is what actually gets them off their duff and invested. Many of us, and I know this feeling as well, I can empathize with all these feelings, many of us use that lump sum as an albatross around our neck, dragging us down. It's this big, heavy thing, and we don't get invested for quite a long time because we're too intimidated and stressed out by the prospect of investing that. And we often forego some good gains by doing that. That's why I love the answer of be incremental. And yet, that said, Simon, I would be remiss if I didn't quickly flip the coin over and describe the other side for you. Because for some of us who don't need that psychological hedge, simple math will show that more often than not, simply investing a lump sum right away, all in, will perform better for you over time than those of us who took the incremental approach that I just described earlier. And why is that? Well, again, it's simple math, isn't it? Because when the stock market tends to rise, again, on average 10% a year, and two years out of every three, when the stock market, and I realize not a lot of people feel this way, they think it's a parabola, but it's it's a hyperbola. If you look at a chart of the Dow Jones Industrials over the last 100 years, or almost any stock market over the last X decades, you're going to see it goes up. Therefore, every dollar you wait to invest, if you invest in thirds, if you invest in fifths, if you're waiting with a portion of your capital, chances are, all in all, that that money is sitting there doing nothing when it could have been rising a little bit. So, I hope I've done a good job showing both sides of the coin. And I hope whoever you are, Simon, whether you're more that person who likes the incremental approach, you feel stressed by a lump sum, if that helps you, great. Or if you're somebody who can flip the coin over and say to yourself, I realize over the next three months, the bottom could drop out of the market. It could lose 25% of its value, but darn it, I'm still going to be invested and I'm, not, I'm just going to say that was bad luck. I can take it. If you're that kind of a person, then more often than not, you'll be benefited by simply investing as much as you can, as early as you can, and holding. All right, mailbag items number nine, 10, and 11. Here we go. Number nine, I'm just going to call this one Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, if you will. I got several messages. Kishore, Sean Hogue, Sheldon, each of you. I've seen some notes on Twitter as well. Can you know who you are? There are a number of people who would like this podcast to speak to cryptocurrencies, Ethereum, Bitcoin, etc. I absolutely appreciate that you would like me to do that, and I suspect at some point in the coming months, I probably will. But the reason that I haven't done it in the first place is because I don't know that much about cryptocurrency myself. It's a big, tangled subject. 
I've read some articles here and there, but I don't feel particularly authoritative. So, if and when we do cover it on Rule Breaker Investing, which, by the way, seems very likely that we would or should, it seems obviously very Rule Breakery, you can expect that I'll be interviewing somebody or have a small panel or an expert joining me to discuss the topic. But in the meantime, before we ever do that, I want to make sure that you know that we do cover these kinds of things at The Motley Fool. In fact, I want to refer one specific podcast to anybody who has this Bitcoin question that was done by Motley Fool Industry Focus. The date is July 17th of this summer. So, go in and find our financials podcast. It was called Cryptic Currencies with Brian Patrick Eha and Brian Patrick Eha, author of How Money Got Free, joins Gabby Lapira for her podcast that day, discussing cryptocurrencies, tokens, blockchain technology, what it all means for investors, regulators, and financial systems. You know, it's a wonderful opportunity for me to plug Industry Focus, one of the many Motley Fool podcasts that I enjoy. I hope you enjoy it too. And in fact, every Monday, Gabby does financials, looking at various aspects of the financial world. and In this case, it was cryptocurrencies. I listened to that. I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot at the time. So, I would suggest for anybody who wants some motley foolishness on cryptocurrency, you go to that July 17, 2017, Financials Cryptocurrencies with Brian Patrick Eha and Gabby, and enjoy that. Then, having listened to that, come back and ask me some more smart questions, or tell me what we should be doing on this podcast. I always do appreciate your input. Thank you. Oh, and I should mention, podcasts.fool.com is a very convenient place to find each of our podcasts and to find the dated version of any one of these podcasts. So, check out podcasts.fool.com. Mailbag item number 10. Hello, David. I've discovered your podcast about two weeks ago. I have to say, the timing is excellent. As a family, we've just finished paying off high-interest debts, and we are ready to start investing, writes Hervé Claveau from Quebec. Canada. I subscribe to your stock advisor service. Hervé writes, I'm days away from investing my first $1,000, according to your starter suggestions. Two things. There's something your service or podcast doesn't offer. I think it's very important. Perspective. Can you recommend someone who doesn't share your vision of investing and would offer another perspective? And second, how long should I spend analyzing a stock as a beginner before deciding whether or not to invest in it? Thank you from Quebec, Canada. And thank you, Hervé. I was in Quebec City in the past week. I had an absolutely wonderful time visiting the old part of the city and taking a river cruise and seeing Montmorency Falls and a lot of the pleasures that Quebec City offers tourists like me. It was a wonderful place for my wife and me to go after dropping off our youngest at college and welcoming in a new phase of life, the empty nest. So, we ended up deciding, you know, we should take a trip and celebrate and think. And that's what we did in your capital city of Quebec province. So thanks, Hervé, for, I guess, in some sense, hosting us. All right. Well, let me host your question and give you a quick answer back. First of all, if you want another perspective, I think we have that at The Motley Fool. In fact, we're a very Motley Fool. So I've mentioned certainly some of our services, this podcast, things like Motley Fool Stock Advisor or Rule Breaker services that I work on. But that would be giving short shrift to some other different perspectives, like Motley Fool Hidden Gems or Motley Fool Inside Value. So, we have a very motley office. The things that I say on this podcast are probably not agreed with by many people who work right alongside me, and I celebrate that, just like I might not agree with their particular approach to investing. Or it's not that I don't agree with it, it's just that I don't use it. We each have different approaches. So, there are some classic wrong generalizations, I think, made about value investing and growth investing and these kinds of things. But regardless of the 
frameworks that you want to use. We have a very motley culture, and heck, even outside just of the different perspectives and services we have here at the Motley Fool, we have members, members like you, using our discussion boards, who often disagree flat out with a stock pick that I may have made or not made. So we have a wonderful community, and that's part of any Motley Fool service that you've subscribed to, at least the ones that I work on. Many here have discussion boards and ways to hear different perspectives. I absolutely champion your effort to hear about new perspectives. And yes, I'm giving a very slanted rule breaker review of the world on this podcast. Then you also asked, how long should you analyze a stock as a beginner before deciding whether or not to invest in it? Well, here I might go to investing incrementally. And a quick answer that fits in with some other things that I've said this week. But why not, once you find out about a company that you admire, a product or service that you like, once you discover it's a public company, why not consider buying some shares right then? Maybe just a small position. Just get started with it. But that's one of the best ways that a lot of us kind of unblock ourselves and get invested in stocks is just take a small position up front, then study it some more. Maybe the study takes one weekend and you end up convinced on Monday morning you're going to add to that position or not. Or maybe that study takes a quarter because you want to see the next quarterly earnings report. Or maybe some of us do this. I do this sometimes. I keep a stock on a watch list for a whole year. Or maybe even sometimes I'll pick a stock off Stock Advisor. I have a watch list that we keep, and that stock may have been sitting on that list for five years, and I finally decide to recommend it to members. So, how long research takes is different for each of us, both on our own stylistics and also the world at large. Maybe you want the world to show you something about that company before you would buy more of it. So, it's not about you, it's about what happens out there in the marketplace. So, I think that there are different amounts of time for each of us, but I hope I'm giving you a perspective that you should. Be suiting the amount of time, probably to the amount of money that you put in that stock. So, I wouldn't spend little time and put a large amount of money in. I would spend a large amount of time if I'm going to put a large amount of money in, usually adding to something over time, which is what we've done very successfully over the years, re recommending it, adding to winners over the course of time. So, I hope that helps you, Hervé, and thank you for helping me this past week, as I mentioned. Full on. And mailbag item number 11. Thanks for those still listening. Thanks for hanging out to the grizzled end to close out this Motley Fool Rule Breaker Investing podcast mailbag. And I'm going to go back to my friend Bill Housley. Bill, you dropped me another nice note this month. And here it is, in part anyway. I pre ordered your book, The Motley Fool Investment Guide, this morning because someday I would like to help with my three month old grandson kickstarting his future with a good education. Who knows? Bill writes, maybe in 18 years. He'll be one of your interns. Anyway, based on your encouragement, I've read the following books. Frankly, they're a little over my head, but I pushed through it because it was good for my brain to be challenged. They are A Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Malkiel, Irrational Exuberance by Robert Schiller, and The Myth of the Rational Market by the last name is Fox. Most of the authors seem to say that one should just buy the market through some index fund or ETF. My impression of your thoughts seems to be buy great companies, try to find a few rule breakers. I assume you have some of your own portfolio in a low-cost all-market index. What percents of your portfolio are invested how? Thank you for helping make me a better investor, Bill." All right, two things to close here, Bill. First of all, I personally have never read any of those three books, so congratulations. If you somehow took away from me that I was recommending those books, I'm glad that you read them. 
They might be a little bit over my head, too. I certainly know of them, and A Random Walk Down Wall Street is a classic, where Burton Malkiel, the Princeton professor, essentially concludes that you should pick your stocks by throwing darts at a dartboard, because it's all basically luck, you're not going to beat the market, this kind of a thing. And so, it's not surprising that a lot of these kinds of books, and again, I respect them, and I'm glad that they exist, and Jack Bogle has used them to great effect as he's built Vanguard over the decades, I think that most of them will conclude that you shouldn't buy stocks at all, you should just buy index funds. And I'll just say, I thank my lucky stars that was never pushed too hard on me, because I would be a much poorer man today by many different measures had I listened to that. But I do understand and appreciate that index funds, for many people, can be a good answer. And in fact, The Motley Fool Investment Guide talks a lot about that. And The Motley Fool has been very successful in helping out Vanguard over the years to get more and more people invested and to get them in indices. To answer your question, Bill, I do have some small holdings. Basically, a portion of my 401k is just sitting in index funds, because that's just the unimaginative way that I have pursued my 401k. But most of my net worth is tied up directly in stocks. So, I think of myself as nearly 100% invested in stocks. I've never owned a managed mutual fund, and I only just have the index fund and the 401k as a way to kind of mail it in with that. And um, I, I'm glad that I have it, and it's fun to use as a benchmark for my other stock market investments. But if you're following Stock Advisor or Rule Breakers over the years, you can imagine we're beating that index fund. So um, that's my own answer. But for each of us, we have a different answer. And I certainly appreciate that some people would walk away from this podcast today and say, you know what, I'm not invested yet, but I'm going to start with an index fund. And if I'm ever going to buy a stock, you're going to think to yourself, and I'm fine with this, that I'm going to make sure I know more than I know today about the stock market. So, for each of us, we'll come up with our own answers. That was mine. Bill, I'm glad to hear about yours, especially that you're making that effort on behalf of that three-month-old little tyke. Best wishes to you and him. And that's it for this one of the longer Motley Fool podcasts. I think Mailbag is always a big event for me every month. I do want to mention, next week, I'm very excited to share with you not just one, but two different reviews of past stocks picked. So, two years ago this week, I picked one set of five stocks. One year ago this week, this upcoming week, I picked another set of five stocks. And next week, we're going to review what those were, how they've done so far, and what we can learn from them. In the meantime, Fool on! As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.